Hey there, and welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Timberlake Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Our mission is to reach, feed, and release people to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You can learn more at our website, TimberlakeUMC.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Brothers and sisters, now is the time we open the scripture and listen for what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. And so if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open it to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. As always, you can follow along on the screen as I read. This is a Christmas story. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. May God add his blessing to the reading and the understanding and the doing of his holy word. Brothers and sisters, welcome to week two of Advent and of our sermon series. It's called The Songs of Christmas. We're unpacking, examining some of our favorite carols. Next week is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and the week after that is Silent Night. And today we're talking about O Come All Ye Faithful. O Come All Ye Faithful, Joyful and Triumphant. O Come Ye, O Come Ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. One of the classic Christmas carols of the last 300 years, written from the perspective of an angel, or maybe some faithful onlooker, or perhaps from the viewpoint of one of the shepherds. The story goes like this. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. Come and let's go to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Come and behold the newborn king. This carol, I love it because it's an invitation from one believer to another to say, let us go and see what God has done. This carol, uh, it's not clear exactly who wrote it, um, but most people give credit to a Catholic layperson named John Francis Wade. It's believed that he wrote the music and the lyrics in around 1743, and he wrote it in Latin. He wrote it in Latin, Adeste Fidelis, Laity Triumphants. In fact, if you go to our hymnal now, you can see the Latin there and you can sing it if, if you're so moved. Um, about a hundred years later, um, a, an Anglican pastor named Frederick Oakley translated it into English. And his first attempt was, Ye faithful approach ye. Now, for some reason, that didn't catch on. <laughs> ye faithful approach ye, right? Aren't you glad it didn't catch on? And he tried again a little later, and he came up with, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. So we sang it earlier. We're going to sing it again later. But today, I want really to help you grow in your appreciation for the words, for the meaning of the song, for what it means to the church, for what it means to the world, and what it means to you. 
to think theologically, to think spiritually about this song and to look at the story behind the song right from the Scripture and to imagine how this story is shaping us to be particular kinds of people. So let's take a closer look at three of the verses, okay? We're going to look at verse 2 and 3 and verse 6. So we'll start with verse 2. True God from true God, light from light eternal, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. Word of the Father, begotten, not created. So just like last week, we unpacked O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and we talked Christology. Everybody say Christology. Christology means the study of Christ, okay? So we're studying the identity, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to do that again today. And um, I want you to notice a couple things about this. The language is a little bit old, right? It sounds like sort of King James with the ye and the shall and this kind of thing. Um, Look at the third line, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. You know what that means, right? Jesus does not reject our humanity. He embraces it by being born of a woman in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is really important because for the first 300 years or so of the existence of the church, the first 300 years after Jesus came onto the scene in the flesh, the church argued and debated these ideas. And the question was, who is Jesus really? Now, we, that, this question has since then been settled by the people who have interpreted the Scriptures and the story of Christ. But early on, it was not settled. Okay, so they debated, and they told the story over and over, and they asked, what does it mean? And they said, well, is Jesus the same as God, or is Jesus different than God? And is Jesus really a human, or did he only appear to be human, like some kind of hologram or something? And is he actually divine, or is he uh, just a human being like us? And they wrestled with these questions over and over again. And after hundreds of years of prayer and conversation and debate, they wrote down their beliefs in what we call the creeds. And so we have the Apostles' Creed as one of the most important, and the Nicene Creed, which was written, guess where, at the Council of Nicaea, right? Okay, so Council of Nicaea, Nicene Creed, we're going to put an excerpt up here so you can see it. I want you to notice the similarities to the song, all right? Let's say these words together, ready? We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Okay, this is really, really important, friends, these ideas of Christology that we are laying out. And what I want to do right now is put the creed, the words of the creed, next to the words of the verse. I want you to notice the similarities, okay? Just take a moment and sort of compare side by side. You see the similarities. You see the threads. Okay, so we're seeing where the carol, the hymn writer, gets some of these words from. Now, all this is biblical. It comes from the Bible. But one of the nice things about the creed is they take the story of the Scripture and they lay out in plain English what it is we believe. So after much discussion and debate, this is what the church came down and said, that we believe in one Lord. There's only one Lord, and His name is Jesus Christ. He is God from God. He is the true God. He's not some lesser person. He's not a different kind of God. He is the one God appearing in the flesh. He is begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. We're going to talk about that, what it means to be begotten. And he is of one being with the Father. Friends, this idea is central because the center of our faith, the central theological notion of our faith is what we call the incarnation. Everybody say incarnation. Incarnation Incarnation means literally in the meat. 
in the flesh. It's this idea that on Christmas, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is fully human and fully God, which is really important, friends. It's really, really important because only God can save, but only humans need saving. And so Jesus is uniquely qualified to give us salvation because he is at the same time God and human. It's not that he appears to be God, but he's really human, or he's really God, but just appears to be human. He is 100% human, 100% God, fully divine, fully human, all at once. Now, this is what's fascinating about this. Only Christianity claims that God took on human flesh. You understand this? If you talk to people of other faiths, they will tell you, well, that's a nice idea, but let's be honest. It's beneath God to become human, right? Why? Because God is high and we are low, because God is holy and we are sinful, because God is big and we are small. And so we agree with them and the, with the idea that it's scandalous for God to become human. But friends, this is the truth, and this is our story, and what makes it so extraordinary is that it is scandalous. That God didn't have to do it, that we are sinful and God is holy, and yet God became one of us to save us. That is how much God loves you, friends. So don't sleep on this. Don't miss that this is the power of Christmas and the essence of Christianity, friends. In order to understand the incarnation, we need to understand some of these things about Christology and about Trinitarian theology, the idea that God exists eternally as one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's come back to this word begotten. When's the last time you used the word begotten in casual conversation? Never ago, right? Yeah, never. Okay, so begotten means to bring about. It means to draw up, but we distinguish between the word begotten and created. We distinguish between the word begotten and made because Jesus Christ is begotten of the Father. It says in John 1.14, in the King James Version in particular, John 1.14, he is begotten of the Father, means brought forth by the Father, but not created by the Father. Do you understand that as soon as you say something is created, they are less than the Creator, right? Right, so Jesus is not created, he is uncreated. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, existing eternally as part of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are you with me? This makes sense. I don't want to go on until we get it, because this is really important. Uh, The Bible says Jesus is Alpha and Omega, right? He's the beginning and the end. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit of the same essence, one God forever and ever. Jesus is begotten, not created. Okay, we got it. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation. O sing, all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. Now the song calls for the heavenly choir to sing in celebration of the birth of Christ. And this is what heaven is like, friends. Angels and humans gathered together to sing God's praises forever and ever. And I don't know if you realize this, but if heaven is one long season of worshiping God through song, do you know what this is we're having right now? This is choir practice, okay? So welcome to choir practice. And some of you are saying to me, oh, pastor, I can't sing. Yes, you can. Yes, you can, friends. And the Bible says to make a joyful what? Noise. I know you can make a noise, so make it joyful, and, and there you go. Um, someone after the first service said to me, well, pastor, if you can't uh, sing well, sing loud, 
And I said, amen. If you can't sing well, sing loud because we'll make a joyful noise. And this is what heaven is like. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation. Now these words, glory to God in the highest, do you know where they come from? They come from the scripture, they come from the gospel, okay? So again, the hymn writers, friends, are taking the word of God and they're putting it into music so that we can sing our faith. And one of the great things about being Wesleyan, as we are, descendants of the the faith of John Wesley, is we have what we call a sung theology, right? So we sing our faith, we sing the story. Yes, we tell the story in scripture, we tell it in preaching, but we also tell it in music, don't we? And so we have a sung theology and we sing out our faith. So look at the connection now between verse 3 and now put up Luke 2 verse 13 to 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven. There it is. And on earth peace among those whom he favors. So the heavenly choir is singing, and they're singing peace to the people on earth. But not only everyone, but particularly to who? Peace for who? Those whom God favors. Let's talk about that a little bit. We usually skip over that part, right? Have you ever heard a sermon on that phrase before? I haven't, um, but you're going to hear one right now. Um, (laughs) Those who God favors. God favors. Uh, Has it ever occurred to you that God has favorites? It hasn't, has it? And you don't like that idea, do you? And I don't either because it's like, well, hang on. I thought God loves us all equally, and that's, you know, that's not fair if he has favorites, and that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But if you read the Bible, friends, it's pretty clear that God has favor for certain people. And so we might use the language of favor. God has favorites. God loves some people more. Now, just because God loves some people more doesn't mean he loves you any less. But God loves some people more. Now, who are the kinds of people that are God's favorites? Well, according to the Bible, it's the poor and the hungry. It's the righteous. It's the outcast and widows and immigrants and orphans, people who do God's will, peacemakers, the merciful, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the pure in heart. God loves them more. Why? Do you know? They need it more, don't they? They need it more. And so while the world is tearing down some people, God is busy lifting them up. Friends, have you noticed how the world rejects some people? The world tears down some people, and God lifts them up and says, they are special to me. Right? God's like the one who stands up to the bully and says, look, you want to mess with him, you mess with me. Right? God stands up for the least. God stands up for the least. Now, friends, I know that oftentimes that means, you know, people out there. But don't forget the fact that sometimes when we talk about the least, we're talking about ourselves. You ever had a season in your life when you were poor in spirit? You ever had a season of meekness and of mourning? You ever had a season of poverty? Friends, we've all been there. And thank God that in those moments, God loves us the best. And God lifts us up. And we are God's chosen children Because we need it desperately in that moment. Friends, it's not an accident that when Jesus came onto the scene, he was born to a poor family. This is not incidental to the story of Christmas, that Jesus is born in a barn, far away from home, laid in an animal feed trough, right? This is not a bassinet, right? This is a manger. 
He's visited by outcasts like shepherds and magicians. You know, the Magi were like astrologers, right? These are people on the lowest rung of the social ladder. And then the first two or three years of Jesus' life, he was a political refugee. You know that part of the story? He's born, King Herod hears about it from the wise man. He's like, all right, let's go kill him. And Joseph hears about it. He's going to take his family. Joseph takes Mary and Jesus, and they flee to Egypt. Jesus is a political refugee, friends. He is the least. He has come for the least. Okay, so if we can accept the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, is born as a poor, helpless baby, if we can accept the fact that God does have favorites, and that sometimes in our wealth and our prosperity, our earthly power, we're not on the list of favorites, if we can accept all that, then what should we do about it? What should we do about this idea that Jesus was a poor child and that God has favorites and we're not necessarily on the list of favorites? Here's my suggestion about what we do about it, is we join in the blessing that God wants to give to the people God wants to bless. That we, we look around and we see who the least and the lowly are and we find out how God wants to bless them and then we join in. And the way I think, friends, that we reconcile our relative wealth, because we are relatively wealthy, aren't we? And we are relatively blessed compared to most of the people of this earth in this time. The way to reconcile that is to use what God has given us to bless other people. It's not to, not to feel guilty about it or try to reject it or to get rid of your blessings, but to share your blessings and to give away, give away, give away continually what God has given us. I'm so proud at our church that 100% of our Christmas Eve offering is given away. We don't keep any of it. We don't spend any of it on salaries or on keeping the lights on or on decorations. 100% of it is given away. And this year, 100% of our Christmas Eve offering is going to be used to feed people. Friends, I don't know if you know what it costs to, to procure the food that we use to feed people, but it's tens of thousands of dollars every year. Tens of thousands of dollars are being spent to feed hungry people. And so I'm challenging you to bring a generous gift on Christmas Eve. And if you can't be here on Christmas Eve, to send in your gift, either through the website or one of our many ways of giving. And I'm challenging you to give as much for the Christmas Eve offering as you spend on your own family for Christmas gifts. And that's a lot, isn't it? We spend a lot on our families for Christmas gifts. I'm challenging you to bring a a big and generous gift to bless those who are in need at Christmas time. Okay, verse 6. Let's talk about verse 6. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Do you know what that means? Word of the Father. Are you with me? Jesus is the Word of God. He is the living Word. He is the Word who brought creation into being. So remember, we said Jesus is uncreated, right? We said he is begotten, not made. But notice, not only is Jesus uncreated, he is the creator. Okay, so think about what you know about the creation story. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. How did God make the heavens and the earth? Do you know? He spoke with his word. God said, let there be light. And there was what? There was light. God said it, which is just an extraordinary nod to God's power, right? If you and I want to make something, you get your saw, you get your drill, right? Uh, God doesn't need any of that. God just says it, and boom, there it is. That's extraordinary. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. By the word of God, the world is made. Now, notice the W in word is capitalized. 
Okay, this is a proper noun referring to Jesus as the Word. Jesus is the Word of the Father. John 1, okay, in, in, the, in the beginning of John's Gospel, John says, In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is another way to say logos, another way to say the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So now John, the gospel writer, is claiming, look, this Jesus, he's born, but he's not created because he was in the beginning with the Father and the Spirit, one God existing eternally in three persons. The Word of the Father, who's now becoming flesh, is the one who made everything that existed, the Word of God. Are you with me? Friends, this is why Christmas is so extraordinary, because the God who made you, who made this world, shows up in Bethlehem. Jesus, the Word of God with skin on. Therefore, we give him all the glory. Therefore, we rejoice and celebrate. This is the happiest of mornings, Luke 2, 10 to 11. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Friends, Messiah means anointed one. You know, that means the one that the Israelites were waiting for and waiting for hundreds of years. They're waiting for their Christ to come, their Messiah. And finally, he is being born. Have you ever experienced something that is so great, that is so life-changing, that is so awesome, you have to tell someone about it? You ever had that experience? I'm talking about this kind of experience. Like, look at this! And you show them the photos. You're like, you got to see this. Or where you grab them by the hand and you drag them to see this amazing thing that God has done. That's what Christmas is like. That's what the shepherds did to one another. Come on, we got to go and see this extraordinary thing that God has done. That in the backwaters of the Roman Empire... In a sleepy little village where only a carpenter and his teenage fiance and an innkeeper and maybe a goat and a donkey and a cow were witnesses, a baby was born and God showed up. God showed up. And because of this good news, because he's born the king of angels, because he is true God from true God, because he is the word of the Father now in flesh appearing, because even the heavenly choirs are singing, therefore... Oh, come, let us adore him. Friends, the point of this carol is to try to convince you to adore Christ the Lord. I want to talk with you about this idea of adoration. We're going to finish with this today. Adoration is such a strong word. Think about what it means to adore, to thank, to praise, to give glory, to give honor, to exalt, to revere, to admire, to worship. You see, friends, The point of the Christian life is not trying to understand God. The point of the Christian life is for you to adore God. You're never going to totally understand God, not this side of heaven. You know, I can stand up here and give you sermon after sermon after sermon, and we will never get our heads around the mystery of God. By the way, which is why this is never going to be exclusively a teaching event. This is a preaching event because we are proclaiming a mystery that we do not understand. The proclaiming the idea that in Jesus God has come near to us. And so we are called on to adore him, to adore him. Adoration is one of the most underrated ideas in the church today. 
We are so busy learning things about God and doing things for God and giving advice to God and asking for help from God. We have forgotten that we need to be adoring God. What does it look like to adore? How's that feel to you? I don't think it's an accident that when God showed up, he came as a cute, cuddly baby, right? Because nothing draws out the adoration of human beings like a baby. You ever thought about that? Think about the face that you make when you get near a baby. Okay, when you hold your child or your grandchild or your friend's child, or when you serve here and volunteer in the nursery and you hold the babies, or when you come during the week and you, you help out at Avonlea's Angels as one of the cuddlers and you, you hold those babies, or when we bring a child up here on this platform and we baptize that child in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'm holding that baby and you're looking at that baby, the look on your face in that moment, that is adoration. That is adoration. Now, there's a human kind of adoration. There's the divine kind of adoration, and both are good. But we're really talking about one, not the other. You see, the human kind of adoration is, is like this. Oh, my gosh. This baby. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, I love the smell of a baby. You know, and you get your face in there, and you put your cheek up against the baby's cheek. And you're like, ah, oh, I could just eat this baby. And, like, I'm not supposed to eat the baby, but just so scrumptious, right? And that's, that's good. The baby's so cute and so adorable. And so you adore that baby. But then there's a a divine side of adoration where you're holding that child and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, this is a miracle. This is the creation of Almighty God and this child has been shared with me. Praise God for his amazing creation. Now think of all of that awe and all of that joy and all of that pride and all of that reverence that you pour out when you adore. And imagine pouring all that out, not just on any baby, but on the Christ child. Friends, that is what adoration looks like. When you pour out everything of yourself into the heart of God, And you adore him over and over again because of who he is and what he has done for you, friends. This is the attitude that I hope you come with on Sunday mornings when we are joined in worship to adore the living God, to say, God, you are worthy of every praise, and I'm here to worship you and to say, I'm not worthy of you, but God, you are so big and so mighty and so powerful and so holy. Lord Jesus, you are so beautiful and so wonderful. You fill me with awe and with joy and with pride and with reverence. Jesus, it is my privilege to sit in your presence. It is my privilege to call you Savior, It is my privilege to call you friend. It is my privilege just to say your name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him. Amen.